0: Lord, we do praise your name this morning. We say hallelujah, praise to the Lord. We're grateful today for the work of Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That we love him because he first loved us. Thank you for that initiating work of sending your son Jesus to come and to die and to rise again so that we have hope and can have hope through faith in Christ of sins forgiven, of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and an eternity in heaven. God, may that be the anthem over our hearts as we enter the world, as we go into the workplace, as we interact with neighbors, as we go to the store, wherever we may be, may the anthem of Jesus Christ being praised be written across our lives. And may it be a call, a call that people see, and are welcomed in to faith through, or into relationship with Jesus through faith. May that be a testimony to them of what's available. If they repent of sins, and trust in Jesus as the only way of salvation, give them the same joy of life with God. This morning as we look into your word, we pray that you would widen and expand our understanding of mercy. Expand our understanding of this grace that we've been singing about. Expand our appreciation of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And Lord, I pray that you would take us deeper into obedience that happens so often in the midst of suffering. Be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. If I were to have a conversation with any one of you today, and I were to ask you the question, "Have you experienced a measure of trial or suffering or difficulty?" Everybody in this room, who has a relationship with God, especially I, I, I know, you've suffered. And the reason I know you've suffered or experienced some measure of trial is because that happens to be the formula that God uses to make us more like Christ, to, to help us to grow in faith. That's why in James chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Count it all joy when you experience trials because the testing of your faith produces patience. So you want to look more like Jesus? You want to grow in your relationship with God? It only happens one way. It happens through the, the trials that we experience in this life, the suffering, that God introduces into our lives. But let's just take a scenario. Let's let's just imagine for a moment that that you have you've had a very bad week, and any number of things could have happened. Uh, maybe you wake up and you try to turn on the car, and for whatever reason, there everything is dead, it just clicks, click, 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 and you need to get to work, but for whatever reason, your car is dead, and uh, the, the heavy rains the previous night have meant that your basement is flooded, you've just cleaned up that mess, and, uh, and, and you're trying to go to work, but you just can't make that happen, and in the same week as your daughter was, was riding her scooter across the street, she ran into the curb and did a face plant on the sidewalk and broke her her arm. And all of these things have just culminated into a very bad week. They've shared this with you. Your friend has kind of communicated the struggles of their week, and your response to them is, Hey, love life! Enjoy good days! You're like, Did you hear what I just said? Are you listening? Do you care what I'm going through? Uh, This seems a little insensitive. I'm looking for a little sympathy. I want a little compassion here. And yet they say, love life, see good days. Well, that's exactly what Peter does in our passage today. We are in the flow of suffering. We're talking about hard things that have gone down for this church. He started this letter, by the way. Remember, he's dealing with aliens and strangers. And we talked about that. These are people who have been pushed out of their homelands. People whose property has been confiscated. People who, whose families may have even been separated through various trials that they were undergoing. Whose 401ks were liquidated whose farmlands, whose livestock, whose sheep have all been taken away and given to somebody else. This is the situation of those whom Peter is writing. And here in this passage, he says, you want to love life? You want to see good days? And it almost seems terribly out of place. Matter of fact, it seems terribly unsympathetic. For him to come to the table with this kind of offer to a group of people who are going through hard things. Now, to be honest with you, uh, we've gone through some hard things for the last couple of months. Uh, The passages that we've been touching on have been difficult. And so I was kind of looking forward to week six I was looking forward to, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. We could kind of take a step step back, kind of catch our breath, kind of enjoy uh, uh, some some good news for a change, this, this oasis in the desert, as it were. But as I began to study this passage this week and to pray over it, I began to realize that my perspective of this passage, however true it might have been, was just at the surface level. And to be quite honest with you, there are benefits of exposition. These are the benefits of working your way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because when you come to a passage like this, instead of parachuting in and enjoying the the words and and maybe the cross-references and the truths that are at the surface, You can't ever plumb the depths. You can't ever enjoy the fullness and the richness of the truths that are there without appreciating the context. So I just briefly want to to look through the context of this and, and, and to catch us up to where we are so that we don't just have this surface reading and gloss over the riches of what's happening here. We've been talking about the significance of this section in particular Peter has kind of turned the corner in his letter and he's talking about suffering now. Now we've been focusing on glory through our study. We saw the words glory and glorify in chapter 1 verses 1 to 12. This first section when we've said, be captured by glory. We saw glory and glorify in the second section from chapter 1 verse 13 to chapter 2 verse 12. And we're going to see glory and glorify happening again in chapters 4 and 5. That's our final section. that We're going to start somewhere in the middle of October. But here in this section of chapter 2, verse 13 to the end of chapter 3, you will not find the word glory. But that does not mean that glory is not here. Because we've said that glory is the manifestation of, of God's presence, And by the way, Larry, if there's a way to put the slides on the screen in the back, that would be helpful. Thank you. We said that glory is the manifestation of God's presence, which means glory is how we know that God is present. God is there. His, His presence and power shows up in our lives. And we see God's power and presence in this section through suffering. Peter, in this letter, we saw 16 times he'll refer to suffering. And I'm just going to show a a graphic for you to to help you see how how Peter compares with the rest of the New Testament. Is it up there? Good. How it compares with the rest of the New Testament in terms of, of its attention given to suffering. Because Peter wants you to understand that as a Christian, suffering is what you are called to. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in a moment. In in this section of 1 Peter, suffering is kind of the replacement word. It's the the stand-in word for glory because suffering showcases the presence of God. The the glory of God is showing through your life as you are bearing up under suffering because that's when faith is is known in your life. That's when people see the strengthening power of God in you through suffering. So in this section, there's a attention given to suffering because Peter wants you to understand that's how glory shows up in the world through your life. It shows up in your life through difficulty. And so I want you to know that suffering is the canvas on which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display. Suffering is the canvas on which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display. And that's the whole, it's the whole theme of these next several verses in, in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. So if you have your Bibles, will you open them with me? If you don't have a Bible, use the, the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1015. Let me read this for us as a, as a way to to get us into the text and then we'll we'll talk about what I believe Peter wants us to know from these verses. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If suffering is the canvas on which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display, I want you to understand through through this passage, Peter is commending to us a life that is a window to glory. He wants you to understand that as people see Jesus in your life, as people see the gospel in your life, your life becomes a window. People see heaven through your life. People see God through your life. They see glory through through the window of your life. That is the privilege, the joy that we have as God's people. Notice, I don't want to make this correlation without you being able to see it. Look in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and I want you to to see how the parts of Christ's example then show up in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Notice, chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now do a little gymnastics, page gymnastics with me for a second. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, To this you have been called. Now turn the page to chapter 3, verse 9, and you'll notice, to this you have been called. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin. Then turn to 3, verse 11. Turn from evil and do good. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Back to chapter 2, verse 23, when reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Chapter 3, verse 9, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless. And then chapter 2, verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then chapter 3, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. When you act this way, people see God. Your life becomes a window. You have the joy, the privilege of people not looking at you but but seeing through you to something greater. Seeing through you to glory seeing through you into heaven. They get a window into heaven itself when they see you acting like this, when they see Jesus showing up as you're following in his steps. There's a window to glory through your life. And you have the joy. We have the joy as God's people to be that window and entry point for people to see the gospel and to see God through us. So your life as a window. I I want to make just two main points this morning and then I want to apply these points to us at the end. Hopefully I'll have time to get to the application. Pray for me. Verse 8. I want you to see first of all, your life is a window to glory through contentment. Your life is a window to glory through contentment. Now maybe you say... Okay, where in the world is contentment here? And I, I, want you to, I want to point your attention to this first word in verse 8. It's the word, finally, and then all of you. Finally, all of you. And encapsulated in those words is this church, this group of believers who Peter has been writing to since the very beginning of this letter, who are marked by suffering. And he says, this can be yours as a a body of believers if you learn to depend on God. It's it's, it's evidence. Our our faith in God, our contentment in God is evidence of a life that trusts Him, that's dependent on Him, that's confident in in all that God has promised to give, all that God has promised to give, to do, finally, all of you, when your life demonstrates this quality of contentment, people see God. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There it is. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, to abound uh, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Your life of contentment is a window to God. Your life of contentment and dependence shows that you believe in God. That He is faithful, that he is sufficient, that he is all satisfying, that he is able to meet your needs and strengthen you in the midst of hard things. Finally, all of you. At the same time, I want you to recognize that this is not necessarily for everybody in this room. It's certainly not for everybody in your neighborhood or in your workplace. That Peter, when he writes these words, all of you, is designating a particular category of people. He's he's emphasizing a category of people who know God, who love God, who believe in God, who have a relationship with God. And I would like to think that everybody in this room has a relationship with God, but I know better. Now maybe you know who God is. Maybe you have gone to church for a very long time. Maybe you read the Bible and you pray once in a while. Maybe you're kind of the husband or wife that God has called you to be. Maybe as a child you show respect to your parents. You do what you're told. But when it comes to a real relationship with God, you know nothing about that. This is not for you. This is only for those who recognize their sin who have repented from it, who have confessed it before God, who have turned away through the power of the Holy Spirit, who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have received Him by faith, who recognize that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father is faith in Jesus Christ. And you have laid it down and you have made Him your Lord. You recognize that He is Master and Lord. It's for those kinds of people. The invitation is open, whoever believes may come. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's the invitation. But I don't want to assume that everybody in this room or everyone looking on live stream is in this category. But if you are in this category, your life is a window. It's a window to God as you depend on Him. It's also a window to God when The evidence of your life shows that you delight in God. It shows that that, that God is who brings you satisfaction, that, that your eyes are focused on Him. Otherwise, how could Peter ever say the words that we find in verse 10? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Imagine saying those words to the woman that we see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. She comes to you. She says, my heart is breaking. My husband doesn't love Jesus. He's not a believer. I'm I'm not supported. I'm not loved. I serve him, but he never appreciates what I do. And the thing that is most important to me, he doesn't care about at all. I feel so isolated. I feel so alone. And you respond to that hard cry with, love life, see good days. How can you do this, Peter? You can do it one way and one way only. You can only do it if your delight is in God. You're not looking to this world's life To satisfy. You're looking to God to satisfy. Maybe you might think, well, Peter, this seems a little offensive. This seems a little insensitive. I remembered a friend of mine in college. Her name was Jennifer. And uh, Jennifer had just experienced a loss in her family. Her grandma had just died. And and she and her grandma were super close because she was like a second mom. She looked up to her grandma. Her grandma loved Jesus and and poured her life into Jennifer day after day after day. And and, and so it was really fresh because her death was sudden, totally unexpected. And Jennifer just shared with me just how discouraged she was, how how broken she was over the situation. And she said, I I can only find solace in the fact that my grandma is looking down at me. And I I feel a measure of comfort knowing that my grandma cares about my life. And I said, probably a little naively and matter-of-factly, I said, Jennifer, right now, your grandma is in the presence of God. She's in the presence of God. She doesn't care about you right now. She is celebrating heaven. She is celebrating with the angels. She is not focused in the things below. Her, her eyes are now fixed on the one who purchased her with pl- precious blood. And I am not exaggerating when I say that Jennifer didn't talk to me for a year. But when she did, she said, Andrew, what you said hurt. But what you said was the truth I needed to hear. And I realized that you're right. And, and I realize that having an upward look is what needs to be true of my life all the time. Finding my satisfaction in God and not sat- finding my satisfaction in the things of this world. That would be very important for Jennifer because after having graduated from college and just a few short years later, she would get some pretty significant uh, diagnoses about her physical life. And it would carry her through the next several years and she would suffer physically. But I think she suffered well because her eyes were in the right place. She found her delight in God not in her situation. That's what Peter is trying to help this church understand. You can love life when your eyes are on the right things. Now there are two misconceptions, excuse me, there are two ways to, to, to look at this world. Two ways to consider delight. And, and the first is to consider the passing delights of the world the passing delights of the world. And so for this, I I, I think immediately of King Solomon. I think of this guy who enjoyed life to the max. Uh, This guy who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He, He understood the joys of the physical life in that respect. He had all the popularity he could want. He had all the wealth that he could imagine. Success, authority, accomplishment, pleasure, wisdom, understanding. He knew it all to the max, more than any of us will ever even begin to tap into. And what was his analysis? Well, we find his analysis in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's right. one eighteen. it says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow in chapter 2 verse 17 and 18 he says so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and striving after the wind I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I would I must leave it to the man who will come after me now there's a happy view of life right how about this prognosis in chapter 4 verses 2 and 3? I thought that dead who were already dead were more fortunate than those who were living, who, who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, the New King James says, that which has never existed and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That doesn't sound like a guy who's experienced the joys of life to the max because he came to a place of recognizing that the delights of this world are passing. They're fleeting. They will never fill you up. On the flip side, King Solomon's daddy, King David, the one who penned these words, the words that we find in Psalm 34, I would just encourage you, can you keep your finger in 1 Peter and turn with me? Psalm thirty-four, just for a moment, so we can look at these together. David shows us the permanent delight that we can have in God. It's the delight that stays, the delight that remains, the delight that cannot be taken away from you. While Solomon had a delight that was passing, David has had a delight that was permanent. It was fixed. Notice Psalm thirty-four. It says this, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That is the subtitle of this psalm. And by the way, those who are biblical scholars believe that those subtitles are actually inscripturated. Because they were counted with the words when the Hebrew scribes would would make an accounting to make sure that they got the whole book and every word down. This was part of the tally at the very end. That's why they believe this was inscripturated. Remember the situation? Remember what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 21? This is when David is running for his life. David has done everything right in his life. David has been a faithful servant, a faithful leader, a faithful uh, um, soldier in King Saul's army. And yet Saul is chasing after him and wants to kill him. So David runs straight into Philistine territory. He says, "If, if I get out of Israel, at least I can be safe. So he runs into Gath, which happens to be the hometown of Goliath. And guess what he's carrying with him? Yeah, you guessed it, the sword of Goliath. As if that wasn't going to telecast, Ah, hey, this guy I think is David, and I recognize that sword. It was a moment of crisis. You might say a moment of temporary insanity. And, And yet, notice David's response. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. That was David's response to the difficult suffering and injustice that he experienced at the hands of Saul. And the preserving hand of God to keep him from being killed by Abimelech and the rest of the people in the city of Gath. It goes on in verses 12 to 16. You we'll see that as being familiar because those verses are lifted out of Psalm 34 and quoted for us in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. What man is there, it says in verse 12, who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on are towards the righteous and his ears are towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. How is David ever going to experience the good life when he's running for his life? How is he ever going to experience the good life when he's done everything that God has asked him to do and injustice keeps coming his way? It's because the secret is found in verses 8 to 10. It says, "O oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear the Lord fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing." David has his, had his eyes fixed on a delight in God delighting and tasting and being satisfied by the Lord. He saw the Lord was good and that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Why? Because the Lord who is good continues to give himself to his people. The Lord's presence is known to his people. The Lord wants to show up in power, in strength in your life for his people who are seeking for him. And so your your life then becomes a window to glory as you depend on God, as you're satisfied in God, as you see that God is your all in all. People recognize, especially when life is very hard and you are still content, you are still satisfied, you're still loving life because you're loving God People see God through you when you act this way. Your life is a window through contentment. But now, our second point in verses 8 and 9, we're going to back up. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 3. Your life is a window to glory through Christian community. I just have one blank in your notes. I thought community is what I was going to use, but I want to I want to make sure that we all understand it's not just any community. You're only going to enjoy the life that God has for you when you're involved and committed to a Christian community. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 9. Notice it says, "Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil." or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. In this way of life, in this community, people not only see God, but people get a chance to hear God. They get to see God, and they also have a chance to hear God. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. So your life becomes a window to glory to God. There are five attitudes, for lack of a better word, five attitudes that, that we see here in verse eight that, that this Christian community brings to the table when they meet together. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about you don't get strength from your relationship. God wants you to bring strength to your relationship, right? Remember that? This is the same thing. This is, this is what Peter has in mind. He's bring the strength of God, the glory of God, the presence of God to your relationships in the Christian community so you can all be strengthened. You can all show the glory of God through the window of your community. You can show the strength and glory of God through the way that you relate to one another. And, And these five attitudes that you bring to the table, the unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, We're going to talk about them just a little bit more in a moment. But I wanted to summarize these for us in terms of what we see. This is the way that people see God. Notice. Notice what is happening here. Notice that in this little uh, segment, that all of these words that Peter is using, and you may not be able to, to detect it, from your translation, but, but all of them are adjectives, not verbs. And so they're not things that you do necessarily. They're things that you are. They demonstrate the transforming work of God in your life. They're the quality of the person you have become, the manifest evidence of the work of the Spirit in you, because none of these things, by the way, are natural. None of these things come easy. All of these things happen as the Spirit of God is building them into your life. You can't be a person who's unified in mind or showing brotherly love or sympathy or tenderness unless the Spirit is producing that in you. These are things you bring to the table. These are the strengths or the evidence of the glory of God that you bring to the fellowship to strengthen the group at large. There are also, and you can't see this either, but in the Greek, all of these words are only used here in the New Testament. Peter is he's making up new vocabulary because he wants to stress something very important. He wants to stress the togetherness of these words. You can't do any of these things Independently. You can't do any of these things in isolation. You can't do any of these things on your own. You need community, the Christian community. You need others who are experiencing these things and bringing these same things to the table. It is our joy to be able to to be unified in the way we think, to show sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness and a humble mind. It's the work of God in our lives. As we were thinking about this a little bit this week, uh, the staff, we thought about embassies. And even though an embassy and a consulate are located in another country, they are legally considered the territory of the country they represent. So the host country does not have any jurisdiction inside the embassy of a foreign country. We call that sovereign territory. So when you gather together as believers and these attitudes are representative of your life, you bring heaven down. All of a sudden now it becomes holy ground, as you might put it in the vernacular of Moses. Uh, It is is the, the tabernacling of God among his people. His presence is with you. It is a way for sovereign territory, the kingdom of God present in your life. You can taste the presence of God as you experience Him through this kind of fellowshipping. It is what we were meant to do as God's people as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Our, our, our focus is heavenward and when we meet this way, we enjoy a, a taste of heaven. A preview of heaven, as it were, as God's people. We not only, get to, they not only get to see God, but they also get to hear God. I get that from verse 9 where it says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I want to key in on this phrase, to this you were called. Think think about that phrase with me just for a moment. That the purpose of your salvation is to be so confident in the work of God in your life that regardless of the things that you experience, blessing is coming from your mouth because you are committed to the purpose of God in your life. So someone comes and opposes you. And your response then is, God, thank you for letting me be in the game. Thank you for letting me be a pawn in the the divine chess match of life because I know that even if you sacrifice this pawn, my life, that ultimately your purposes are being fulfilled and the game is won and I can trust that however difficult the experiences are that I experience, that they're not wasted. And so I can bless. I can bless when life is hard. I can bless when opposed. I don't have to fight. I don't have to demand my rights. I don't have to get my way because the battle has already been won. I submit to the battle plan that God has put in place. I submit to his strategy and I bless the people around me because I want to be a window. I want to be a window to Jesus. They will see Jesus that when I'm reviled, I do not revile in return. When I suffer, I do not threaten, but instead I bless and they see God through my life when that is true of the way I respond. In this way, people hear God. They see God and they hear God when we respond to God in faith. Let me just close our time with a bit of application. Uh, this past week, and I would encourage you, if you have not read the article yet, I would encourage you to read the, the a Minute that's talking about small groups and connect groups. We are, as a church, committed to long-term discipling relationships. We are committed to the small group ministry. We believe that small groups is a way, not only for you to be able to, to get to know one another, but it's a way for you to to grow in relationship with one another, relationship with God. But we also understand that it doesn't meet all of the needs that you may have as as an individual. And certainly there are a lot of other relationships that we want to encourage. And so we're also inviting you to be part of something called connect groups, which look a little like a small group, but for a shorter duration of time. And those connect groups will have these five attitudes as kind of the the centerpiece of what we're trying to accomplish. Meaning, when you come to a connect group, we're asking for you to commit, to bring strength to that relationship. Not just enjoy the strength of others, but to bring strength to this uh, fellowship and community. And it happens in these five ways. It happens as you pursue unity of mind. It happens through learning and growing and submitting to the word of God. Uh, the, the Greek here is, is actually the Greek word to have the same mind. And it's not that you think the same necessarily but that your heart is aligned to the same purposes, the same vision, the same truth claims. You're submitting yourself to the authority of the Scripture, and you're interacting with one another and sharing perspectives and growing together. That everyone is a part of the process, not just one person, one teacher who's communicating, but but everyone has a vested interest in growing together through the process of learning. Maybe, for example, some of you might want to, how do we... does the Bible say about being a better parent? And and so during the nine to ten o'clock hour you say let's let's get a group together. Let's look at the Bible together. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. So you're sharing your ideas about what the Bible teaches and and we're going to help find a facilitator who will will lead you in that discussion. Somebody who is equipped, somebody who is able and gifted in teaching who can help lead and facilitate these groups. Unity of mind. There's also this sympathy, which is a compound word. The the two parts of this are are, uh, sun, which means together, and pathos, which is the word for suffering. Isn't it interesting that Peter builds this in. You are a fellow sufferer. You are suffering together. Sympathy happens as you relate to one another through hard things. And then brotherly love, which is a familiar word, the Philadelphia that you have heard. um, It is the the kindness that can only happen in community, with believers, with other people who, who love Jesus. And this brotherly love is is showing up in you're relating to one another and, and concern and praying for the burdens that you all you all are experiencing. This word tender heart is I wish I could pronounce the, the Greek term, but it's it's the it's like exploctna, something like that. It's it's intestines, it's it's the it's the uh, the tenderness that you have way deep down in here. It's the gut tenderness, the, the feelings that you bring, the maybe even the ushy, gushy kind of heartfelt kindness that you have, but it's felt, it's deep, it's down in the gut, the kind of, of tenderness that you will have for one another. And then finally, humble mind. And really, this is the, this is the centerpiece of, of true Christian community as you are coming to serve. It it brings this attitude of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So when you show up at these groups, whether they're small groups or connect groups, come with a mind to serve. Come with a mind to to encourage. Come with a mind to, to share what God is doing in your life. Come with a heart. That is ready to give, not to take. And when we do this, we'll be able to enjoy the blessings that God has promised through these words, that we will then be a window, (laughs) a window to God and a window to glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that we see here in 1 Peter chapter 3. God, I pray that you would help us to be this window. This window that is visible through contentment and a window that is visible through a commitment to Christian community. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us not to have an earthly kind of delight. Not to have an earthly kind of focus. Help us to have a heavenward focus. To see that we exist for the glory of God. We exist for the purposes of God. Write that across our hearts. May you be pleased with the energy that we spend from day to day. May we be like Peter, or excuse me, Paul says, to walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Help us, God, to be that window to Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.